Today's reading from the Word of God comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join the kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in all the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one God, the Lord, there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as have being sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, you with all of your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, from, for whom Christ has died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fail. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Erin Jean Ward uh, is here. She hails from the deepest South Alabama with an accent to prove it, which I love because we don't often have a preacher with a Southern accent. So it's a real treat. Erin uh, has lived all over the country. She's traveled all over the world. She currently calls Nashville home. So she's visiting us here from Nashville. She is a wonderful storyteller. Uh, she's a preacher, a writer, and she's my friend, even though our entire relationship has been online until this weekend. So we finally got to meet in person, which is exciting. Erin um, has served in church ministry as an Episcopal priest, but her ministry is taking on a different form these days. She meets with people for spiritual direction. She helps them listen to what she calls the inklings, which are uh, Holy Spirit-led intuitions and identity work, reflection, habit change work. I met with her during my sabbatical to talk about some of those things in my own life. If I've talked with you about my mental health first aid kit, which has been a wonderful tool for me, that was Erin's uh, idea. So some of you have also developed your own mental health first aid kits through that. And another significant calling on Erin's life and ministry is through sobriety. 
Erin felt a calling to give up drinking a little over five years ago, and part of her ministry now is helping individuals and churches explore their relationship with alcohol, especially as the, the conversation around alcohol and wellness and, and kind of what it's actually doing to our bodies is gaining traction in our culture and our community. So how can we as Christians think about what we put in our bodies in general? How can we show hospitality to people who are struggling or just don't want to drink at all because of their wellness commitments? What does the Bible have to say about all of that? I love Erin's approach. She is compassionate. She's gentle. She's scripture-based. And her, her work and her writing and her preaching is just full of grace and truth. So I'm excited for you all to hear from her today. She's also a woman after my own heart because she prepares her sermons like I do. That's her three cats helping her prepare her sermons. Um, and just because I haven't showed you a picture of my cats in a while, I thought I'd throw one of those up there too. <laughs> You're welcome, Tomta and Nessa. Um, so if something resonates with you today and you'd like to, to follow up for whatever reason, I'm always here. Our pastors are always here and our other ministry leaders, your life group leaders. We would love to continue the conversation with you. And again, you can tune into that Zoom call on January 31st. So why don't we welcome Erin to come up? In the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. To this day, I am not what you would call a morning person. Um, even as I wake without an alarm by 7 a.m. Central Time, my body emerging from the grogginess of my sleep meds and into another day. My mornings are a mixture of coffee, wishing I could go back to bed, and being grateful I have a morning at all. A chance to breathe and a body that no longer awakens to a hangover, but to a different type of life. Sobriety redeemed my mornings from hangovers and transformed them into possibility. And the weird thing about hangovers is that I adapted to them over time. They set the tone for my day. The muscles governing my movement would be sore. The head housing my mind would ache. The seat of my heart would feel broken. And the voices in my soul would speak only shame. I adapted to believing this is just how days begin. I came to believe that every day I rested in God, I also had to rest in soreness, ache, brokenheartedness, and shame. My drinking meant that I was shaped to start each day inside a dark night of the soul, even as the rays of sun suggested I could begin again. In the chaos of a life of hangovers, a question couldn't make itself to the front of my heart. Does life have to be this way? Over time, I began to hide from myself in the mirror. It wasn't intentional, but I'd later realize that I always kept my head low. 
amid my attempts to never catch my own eyes in the mirror, God caught sight of me each morning and in the tender gaze of compassion loved me to the end. It was a love I never lost, but also a love I couldn't feel. Because if I didn't want to look myself in the eyes, I certainly didn't want to stare into the face of God. Many years ago, long before sobriety, I found myself with two seemingly unrelated feelings. On the one hand, I didn't feel particularly happy in my life. And on the other hand, I wondered if I should change my relationship with alcohol. And one day, I decided to make a list, because I love lists, of all the things that I desired in my life. And this felt like kind of pie-in-the-sky list. And so I started uh, making this list, and at the time, it felt huge, and it felt impossible. And I wrote things down, like uh, love myself, love my body, write a book, and you know, have a career that makes me want to wake up every morning and get after it, and more. And I finished the list, and I reread it for grammatical errors, as one does. And then I pulled back to, to take it in, right? To just take in the fullness of this list that was a hope for my life. And as I took it in, I had a thought. And I knew in the way that we know God and are known by God that this feeling was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And I had a thought, and the thought was, uh-oh, I think this list might be possible for me on the other side of sobriety. Uh-oh, I think a life marked by what brings me joy and fulfillment might be possible for me on the other side of sobriety. And it was in that moment that I realized that those feelings were deeply related. And joining them together felt terrifying, but it also made the work worth it, because my motivation was the fullness of an abundant life. And as of today, I'm a little over five years sober as of November, and my life is not perfect. Uh, not by any means. I am still human. Um, I still live in this world. Uh, I see the same news headlines that you see, or if you're not looking at them, I respect that. But I can tell you that everything on my list has come true. Everything on that list has come true for me. Truly allowing in what felt impossible quitting drinking, allowed for what felt impossible, a life marked by my joy. My life when I was drinking was not the worst life a person could have, and I think that's important. Um, I never hit a quintessential rock bottom. My motivation was spiritual, and it was hope-based, and it was God acting in my life. Because at the time, my life wasn't the worst it could be, but my life wasn't joyful. It didn't feel abundant. 
And it wasn't an offering of myself and my beauty and my fullness to the world. When I was drinking, I followed the countless messages I had heard all my life, which told me that alcohol would make me funny, alcohol would make me desirable, alcohol would make me affluent, alcohol would give me my people. And the problem with this is that it's false. I turned to alcohol to receive things alcohol cannot give. And that, that turning to something to receive what it cannot give, is at the heart of idolatry, which is what we learn in our scripture today. Idolatry is, I would say, looking for God in the places we know God cannot be. It is expecting the liberating God while we look into the places where we feel most chained. It is expecting the joyful God while we look into the places where we feel most depressed. It is expecting the life-giving God while we look into the places where we feel most dead. Idolatry in this way is a futile act. Because looking for God where we know God isn't simply creates a world for ourselves that is marked by disappointment. Today we receive the words of 1 Corinthians, a missive on idolatry and hospitality. The text explores food sacrificed to idols, and Paul writes, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So then, the one God from whom all things came and for whom we live is the only source that stands a chance at making me funny, making me desirable, ridding me of the want to be affluent, and giving me my people. Alcohol was, in fact, nothing at all, because alcohol never delivered on its promises in my life. And in turning to it, turning to this idol, I turned away from the source of light and life that held each desire of my heart ready to give if I would only but turn to God. So there is a personal aspect to today's scripture, how it calls us to discern our relationship with turning to things that don't serve us, expecting to be served. But today's scripture is also explicitly about how the personal becomes the communal. It demands we care for our interior discernment and also our exterior hospitality. Today's passage specifically mentions those with weak conscience. And I learned through Amy Jill Levine's Jewish Annotated New Testament that in Judaism, conscience speaks to a person's awareness of God. 
And in this context, it speaks to their awareness and conviction that idols are not God. And awareness, it happens over time. Aside from burning bush moments, which I assume many of us have had, most of our awareness is something that typically happens over time. And I can attest to how discernment around our relationship with alcohol certainly can happen over time. I wrote out my lists. I felt a calling from God to get sober, and it took years before I quit drinking. My conscience shifted and changed over the course of those tender years of sober curiosity while I was still drinking. Those years when I was, as the scripture might say, weak in conscience, but growing stronger. For me, I had to get mindful about my relationship with alcohol and bring that awareness into how I was drinking, how it was making me feel, and what my true hopes were for my life on this side of the veil. If you're feeling called to bring discernment into your relationship with alcohol, that might feel like the biggest, hugest, most impossible notion. And I get it because it felt really impossible for me too. But remember, allowing in what felt impossible, quitting drinking, allowed for what felt impossible, a life marked by my joy. Bringing mindfulness into your relationship with alcohol can be as simple as keeping a log of when and how much you drink, It can be as simple as reading books about sobriety or blogs to grow in your understanding. Shameless plug, there will be some available later today. It can be as simple as asking God in prayer to illuminate for you any challenges you might be facing regarding how you drink or in other areas of your life if alcohol is not the center focus of your discernment. It doesn't have to feel impossible, but even when it does, as we learn from the Gospel of Luke, nothing is impossible with God. The truth is, people are in varying places with their relationship with alcohol. Some may not be thinking about it at all. Others might be 25 years sober. Some might be sober curious. Others might be cutting back, but they aren't sure if they want to fully quit. Uh, Some might be trying to string together some sober days each week for their wellness. And others might be in the tender first few days of a commitment to never drink again. True hospitality opens us up to caring for people wherever they are in this. And when it comes to alcohol, this is usually very secret, private discernment, which means we probably won't know where other people are in this thought process. There's not a place on your name tags to list your relationship with alcohol, and that's a good thing. We support that, not not encouraging that to become a practice. 
But it does mean that we can't truly know. We can't walk up to someone and know that about them. So then we would be wise to remember the exaltation from Hebrews, which declares, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Yes, discernment around alcohol is often private, so we can think of our hospitality as entertaining angels unaware. And it can be as simple as making sure your parties have really good non-alcoholic beverage options. It can be as simple as not talking negatively about people who struggle with alcohol and other drugs. It can be as simple as noticing when stigma around alcohol shows up in conversation and encouraging the conversation toward more love and less judgment. And these are acts of compassion, ways of loving the beloved children of God we encounter every day. This is how we remember those around us who struggle with alcohol, even if we don't know who they are. These are acts through which the people around you who struggle are not encouraged toward turning to idols as they are instead encouraged toward freedom from that prison, freedom from their suffering through your hospitality and love. And isn't that the deepest hope of our hospitality? That we welcome people into a space of respite? A space that stands a chance at letting them rest from their labor of their suffering and their imprisonment? to receive nourishment and blessing? When we entertain angels unaware, we hold those who struggle tenderly in our hearts, and our actions show them they are loved, whether weak in conscience or strong, which is what it means to be Christ-like. Returning to Paul, he writes, Be careful that the exercise of your right does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. It is one thing to say, I don't struggle with alcohol. It is another to say, because I don't struggle, I'm going to act like no one else struggles around me. And that's true for this and many other issues that we might care for people who struggle with but not face ourselves. And my ministry does not exist to tell everyone to stop drinking. I'm not actually trying to start the new temperance movement, I promise. 
In fact, when I set out to start my own recovery coaching practice, I specifically made it clear that I work with people who want to change their relationship with alcohol in any way. Even if that doesn't mean total sobriety, because I believe in honoring people wherever they are in their discernment and wherever they end up. So I'm not here to tell you to quit drinking. I am here to remind us of the calling we receive from Scripture today to practice hospitality that does not result in harming the beloved children of God around us, the people around us for whom Christ died. And I am here to remind us of the calling we receive from Scripture today to kindly and compassionately bring discernment into our own relationship with alcohol, if we have one, because all of us, each of you, are beloved children of God who are worthy of a life without harm, whether it is harm from someone else or the harm we so often inflict to ourselves. So again, today's scripture calls us into the internal becoming the external, the personal, becoming the communal. And no matter where you are in your relationship with alcohol, we still, by being in community, entertain angels unaware. And it matters that we care for ourselves and that we extend that care to those around us because we don't have to know about their relationship with alcohol in order to love them. All we need to know about the person standing in front of us at any given time is that they are a person for whom Christ died. You are a person for whom Christ died. I wonder often what world we might live in if we understood this about the people we encounter. How mindful of hospitality we might become if we began to associate eye contact with looking into the soul of a person for whom Christ died. I wonder how mindful of care for ourselves we might become if we began to associate looking in the mirror with looking into the soul of a person for whom Christ died. It's possible that this conversation makes you uncomfortable. Well, remember when I said that the journey is largely private? Of course it is. Our society has highly stigmatized challenges with alcohol, which only serves as a barrier to overcoming them. And even for this, Paul has a word for us when he writes, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Even amidst the recognition of the challenges it may cause, grace is still and always extended. Paul is keen to note that we shouldn't define the wholeness of our spirituality on food. And similarly, we should not define the wholeness of our spirituality on drink. 
Furthermore, shaming someone for their drinking is about as helpful as pouring another glass. Because shame fuels why we might use alcohol to cope. And coping is not wrong. Coping is human. We all cope. Of course, we live in a world with startling rates of addiction. Have you seen the news headlines? I wake up every single day to the reminder of at least five, usually more, things happening in the world, both personally and communally, that demand our coping. And shaming someone for the fact that they are struggling in their coping only adds another reason to cope to the list. Drinking has tremendous stigma around it, in part because society places so much of the blame on the individual. But in the midst of a swirl of stigma, hear this. Your relationship with alcohol is not in a vacuum. There's a reason you've been taught what you've been taught. There are reasons you have needed to cope. There are core messages telling you alcohol is a necessary part of a flourishing human life. And this is not your fault. These are old messages you did not write. If we are burdened by the harm of alcohol toward us and those we love, even the angels we entertain unaware, remember, we can make choices to expand our hospitality, to uphold each other in love. We can be mindful of this messaging and seek to end it from our own mouths and the mouths of our communities. So please remember, grace is always extended. We are not defined by what we eat, nor by what we drink. We are forever defined as beloved children of God for whom Christ died. I wonder, how might God be calling you to bring mindfulness and discernment into your relationship with alcohol or other substances? How might God be calling you to take on the mantle of entertaining angels unaware through what you serve at parties and more? What if God is standing before you with arms open, ready to receive your harm and your shame? Will you trust God to heal you? What if every person standing in front of you is worthy of freedom from harm and shame just like you? Will you see them as a beloved child of God for whom Christ died? What if the mirror in front of you wishes to show you a beloved child of God for whom Christ died? Will you make eye contact? What if God is standing before you to show you the only love that stands a chance at delivering on its promises? Will you receive it? I hope you will leave this place feeling loved and reminded of God's deep love for you 
a love that looks like God directing us away from the idols that never deliver on their promises and directing us toward the abundant and everlasting love of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ delivers on his promises. After all, we are the people for whom Christ died. Amen. Let us pray. God, I thank you for the gift of this day. And I ask that you would be present to us in this space, that your Holy Spirit would, like flame and water, give us passion and calm. Help us to discern whatever it is you are calling us to in our lives. And may we remember that you have plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Raise up around us saints and angels to be supporters and guides for us in this life. And may your peace, which passes all understanding, be our companion on this earthly pilgrimage. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who entered the world as a child to grow old. Remind us as we grow in our humanity and the fullness of our person that you are alongside us as our wonderful Counselor and Savior. And Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.